Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It was awfully nice to talk to Dr. John Dixon all the way from Australia. He had a great accent. My guest for this hour, Dr. Mark Muska, does not have a great accent, but boy, is he smart. I'm lousy at accents, too. <laughs> so don't even try. <laughs> okay. Yeah, don't even try. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is a segment we love, I love, especially because A, I get to see my friend Mark, and then B, uh, you can ask any question you like. We call it Ask the Professor. And there's already some great questions already coming in. So uh, mm-hmm. send them over. Send me a text to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Ask any question you like. And Mark will do his very best to answer. Here's the first question that's already come in, Mark. Mm-hmm. I've been reading and learning about the book of Revelation. It was written by the Apostle John. Mm-hmm. Is this the same John that is the disciple of Jesus? And what's the difference between an apostle and a disciple? Yeah, uh, the answer to that is yes, it is. John the Apostle is attributed this. It's one of the, the books where he actually names himself uh, in Revelation 1. He says, I, John, was on the island of Patmos in the Lord's day, and he had this vision of Jesus. Uh, the uh, the other John that's notorious in the New Testament, of course, is John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. Uh, but he's long gone by this time. Remember, Herod had him killed to uh, please his uh, a wife's uh, daughter that she danced for him, and she ended up beheading John the Baptist. But uh, yeah, John was one of the 12. And uh, it's a good question to ask about the difference between a disciple and an apostle. If you just look at the words, Bill, the word disciple means student or learner or follower. So anybody who's a student in a school could say they're a disciple Mm -hmm. of their teachers. And uh, an apostle, this carries the idea with it of one who is sent, and it has implicit in it the idea of being sent with authority. And so uh, 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 Jesus had, most likely he had hundreds of disciples, people who were regulars. We would say on Facebook, they were followers mm-hmm. of Jesus. You know, they liked Jesus and they followed Jesus. Uh, but in his day, they would uh, they would come and listen to him on a regular basis. The multitude was much bigger, and these were people that would just gather maybe once or twice and hear him, and then they'd leave. But uh, disciples, they were more regular to learn from Jesus. And from those disciples, uh, Jesus very specifically, it says uh, that he spent the whole night in prayer, and then he chose 12 of these uh, disciples to be his apostles. And uh, so the apostles, all the apostles were disciples, but not all the disciples were apostles. But I also have to caution you too, though, because the gospel writers sometimes use different words for the apostles. And one of them is that they do call them the disciples sometimes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they just refer to the apostles as the 12. 
And so those are the apostles as well. So you have to read in the context to see exactly who he's talking about when he when he uh, when the when the uh, gospel writer uses the word disciple. But every apostle had face to face interaction with Jesus. Yes, uh, that uh, we get a little information on that in Acts one when uh, the disciples are waiting for uh, this day that Jesus said that they would be clothed with power from on high. So they were supposed to stay in Jerusalem. And so they were gathered together and they decided that they had to replace Judas as one of the 12 because obviously he had betrayed Jesus and had died. And so the criteria that they used for choosing this new apostle was that he had been with Jesus from the beginning. And so, yeah, they had to be eyewitnesses. Now, this was a big problem when Jesus appeared to uh, Saul, the Pharisee, on the road to Damascus, and he became an apostle then, even though when Jesus walked the earth, almost certainly Saul, who later we called Paul, he hated Jesus. He would have been opposed to him Mm -hmm. as a Pharisee. So he had a big turnaround, but he was kind of late to the party being one of the apostles. And that dogged him. There's at least two of his letters where he has to really make his case that he is a genuine apostle. Uh, The book of Galatians, the first two chapters, he spends making his case that he was called by Jesus himself. He did not receive his authority from men, but from Jesus himself. Second uh, Corinthians, he does the same thing. So uh, that was a, a case. Well, th- there are two things with the Apostle Paul, that he was late coming to the 12, and then second, Jesus had called him to go to the Gentiles. And for the <laughs> Jews, that got yeah. them all twisted out of shape. And That's so sell. It was. Yeah. So he had two really big impediments there that they had to work through. And they did, but yeah. it took some time. And yet then he writes 13 books of the New Testament. <laughs> right. And it's he's, fantastic. Yeah, formidable. Formidable. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Here's another question, Mark. Once we are in heaven and we become like Jesus... Mm-hmm. Will we have a perfect understanding of the Bible? Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I, uh, that I, I don't know if I've ever really thought about it. With the perfect understanding of the Bible, the uh, we we will see Jesus and we will know Him. I like the way Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 13 in the love chapter where he says that we now see in a mirror dimly but then face to face mm-hmm. with Jesus uh, and we understand in part but then we will understand fully as we are known. And so uh, the idea of knowing the Bible, I don't really know, Bill. I speculate about that. You wonder if you're going to have some really rootin' tootin' good apologetics kind of Bible studies in heaven where Jesus is going to answer all these questions we got about the scriptures. But then the other side of me says, you know, I don't know if we're going to be that interested in that. When, <coughs> excuse me, when we see Jesus face to face, I think a lot of these questions that we wrestle with are just going to fade away. <laughs> I think so too. And we're gonna we're gonna behold him, and nothing else is gonna matter. Yeah, can I get you some water? Yeah, I got a little throat thing yeah, going. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, here's another question: Why <coughs> did Jesus get baptized if he was sinless? Yeah, that's a really good question. Mm-hmm. Uh, the I like the it, way uh, Matthew uh, deals with this in his gospel because wasn't it, wasn't it partly ceremonial? Well, yes and no. Okay. I mean, a baptism itself is a ceremony, and so uh, it's it's it signifies when someone would be baptized with water. This was a way that they identified with a either a teacher or a message or both. 
And so when uh, John was baptizing, people were identifying with his message. I'm looking here in Matthew 3, and verse 1, it says, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay? That was his message. Repent from your sins. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. They were coming to be baptized. But then Jesus shows up, and it gets a little, uh, it gets a little uh, I don't know, funny or awkward. Uh, verse 13 of Matthew 3, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent Jesus, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? And Jesus answers really good. Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it for this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus came out of the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So uh, Jesus did not—he agreed with the message of John, but that doesn't mean he was a sinner. But he agreed, yes— Repentance should be the proclamation in the land because the kingdom is coming. And in fact, the kingdom is here because the king's here. So he's bringing the kingdom with him in a very real sense. So Mm -hmm. it was a way for Jesus to identify with John's message and to also, uh, two other things, also to affirm John and his legitimacy as a legitimate prophet. And it was really big for John the Baptist because we read in the Gospel of John that John says explicitly, the one who sent me to baptize said that when you baptize, the one on whom you see the Holy Spirit descend, he is the one. And then John says, I saw it and I bear witness he is the Son of God. So this was the telltale sign for John the Baptist of who the Messiah was going to be. It's kind of funny because remember, John John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. Right. And so they had to have known themselves, uh, uh, each other, uh, at least a little bit. But maybe with John in the wilderness for all those years and Jesus grew up, uh, sometimes when you're not around uh, cousins for a while, they can really change. So yeah. this, uh, it's intriguing to try to put that together. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Ask the professor. Let me know what your questions are. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Here's a great question, Mark. Uh, are national borders in God's plan? Oh, I don't know about that. You know, it, it's uh, something like that that's p- political and national uh, and how it lines up with God's kingdom uh, for sure, Bill. We mm-hmm. can say that the kingdom of God transcends borders. And that's one of the great things about the gospel proclamation. It's for everyone. Uh, We read that explicitly in Revelation, that people from every tribe, kindred, tongue will be there worshiping God and the Lamb on that that last day. So uh, if there are... uh, Uh, I would say, God, uh, I'd have to think about this one for a while, but just a a stab at it, that God implicitly endorses borders because he he explicitly supports government and nations. So we are told explicitly that in Romans 13, for example, that uh, the rulers that we have have been ordained by God to be in the position that they're at. And so we are to respect and submit to those authorities 
because uh, God has set them up. So I would extrapolate from that to say that seems to be a legitimization of nations. And if you have nations, you have borders. Mm -hmm. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. We've got Ask the Professor for the full hour. So get your questions over 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. I think uh, we should transition from great is thy faithfulness to happy birthday to Gideon. That's right. My grandson. My grandson's two today. Gideon turned two today. <laughs> and he's got the best older brothers with Jonah and Ezra. And uh, he is celebrating, having a great time. It's great to be two. <laughs> it's a great age, isn't it? It's fun. Yeah. It's really fun. All right. This is Ask the Professor. So send your questions over, 877-933-2484. My wingman, Terry, says, uh, my question for Dr. Uh, Mark, during the Jesus's 1,000-year reign on earth after his second coming, will the Holy Spirit be present? I ask because after his 1,000-year reign, he releases Satan, and Satan is able to command a rebellion against the Messiah with people who lived while under Jesus's rule. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if the Holy Spirit is mentioned at all in Revelation 20 there. I'd have to reread that. But uh, there's no reason to assume that the Spirit is um, uh, somehow absent from that time. Uh, just that millennial kingdom itself is discussed quite a bit uh, among interpreters and uh, theologians, whether that is some metaphorical thing that is being described in Revelation. Anybody who's read Revelation knows it's got symbolism all over the place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have a, a dandy of a time trying to figure out what's what seems to be literal and historical and what seems to be figurative. So uh, the, the millennium gets kicked around a lot. But if this is what it appears to be in Revelation 20, it does not come across as symbolic or metaphorical. There's not some beast with seven heads and ten crowns or something like Mm -hmm. that. It seems to be plainer. Uh, But uh, if I remember right, I'd have to read it again, but I don't think the Holy Spirit is mentioned in there, but that doesn't mean he's not active in that time. So uh, evidently he is able to do his thing as the third person of the Trinity within that that reign of Christ, if in fact that is something that literally is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Another great question that just came in, what Bible verses explain the Trinity? Yeah. Although the word Trinity is never used in Scripture. Right. Uh, Trinity is a theological word. Uh, some people get their noses bent all out of shape because of that. You know, oh my, it's not a biblical term. Oof. Uh, let's, you know, cut that out of the of the history of the church and everything like that. And so uh, there's a lot of stuff that we think of uh, theological words to describe it, and I'm not going to lose a minute of sleep over that. Uh, A couple of the standard verses that are used to um, 
illustrate the idea of the Trinity? First of all, the doctrine that was ham- hammered out by the church for about 300 years uh, 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 declared the, the, the standard statement of the church is that God exists in th- as three persons united in one essence. So there is only one God but he exists in three persons, and those three persons are perfectly united with one another. None of the persons somehow overshadow or taint the others. They all have specific things that they do that they're described doing in the scriptures. But uh, that's the shorthand way to remember it. Three persons, one essence. Or the old theologians would say one substance. Three persons, one substance. Three persons, one essence. So uh, biblical illustrations of this, though, uh, one of them a lot of people are familiar with, it's the Great Commission in Matthew 28, that if you remember Jesus just uh, gathered with the disciples, it's the last verses in Matthew, and he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And so... That seems to point to these three persons in the Trinity. Another one is where uh, Paul signs off in his letter to uh, the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. So in 2 Corinthians 13, the last verse, I mean, he's just, he's signing off here. And he says, verse 12, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. But listen to his benediction here. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So he mentions all three persons of the mm-hmm. Trinity there. I so like that. that's, uh, uh, it's such an old and established uh, teaching. It's uh, hard to argue with. There are some that uh, will uh, uh, take this on. One of them that shows up today, it's an old, old deviation, but it, it, it's come back in the last couple hundred years, is uh, the idea of uh, that God is only one person, but he manifests himself in three modalities or modes or functions. So, I could use myself as an illustration of that. Last time I checked, I'm only one person. Okay, mm-hmm. that's that's nice to know, comforting. And yet I I live in three modes or in three ways. So right now I'm a radio person. When I go home, I'm husband. When I'm around Gideon on his birthday, I'm grandpa. So mm-hmm. still one person, but three roles, three functions, three modes of that. Yeah. Uh, that, that There is a representation of that uh, in some places around the world. Uh, sometimes the most prevalent one is called oneness Pentecostalism or Jesus-only Pentecostalism. Right. And there's, uh, in the Twin Cities area here, Minneapolis-St. Paul, there is a presence of this uh, among uh, some. Uh, the largest denomination that holds to this is the United Pentecostal Church. And uh, people can look that up if they want to on the Internet. Uh, Very informative to see what they believe. But they definitely deny the Trinity as it's been classically taught through the centuries. Why do I get the idea that the grandpa mode is one of the favorite modes right now? Oh, it's fun. Yeah. It's fun. Especially because it's Gideon's birthday today. It is. And I'm not bringing that up again. Yeah, I like you can talk about it all you want. All right. And then Jonah's got a birthday in a couple weeks, too. So it's heyday over there. We're having a great time. All right. Now, people have gotten displaced through uh, their churches through COVID, and, and there's been issues. So question is, uh, how can we have communion without a pastor or elders and without a church family? Can I, as the spiritual head of my family, serve communion to my family? Oh, sure. Oh, good. 
I don't see anything restricting that. Well, maybe I'm giving away my prejudices here, though, Bill, because uh, among some denominations and traditions, they hold the communion or the Lord's Supper in high regard, right. and they just don't want anybody messing around with this. So there's several denominations that insist that if any kind of Lord's Supper or communion is celebrated, it has to be overseen by an ordained pastor in the church that they are overseeing. It's not like they got to hand it all out, but they've got to be there to bless it and to oversee the service. And so I I have to take that back. And in those kind of traditions, uh, I think they would probably frown on that with a a group at home. Uh, I like to go with the idea of church with a small C uh, built, that uh, the church is a gathering of people who have put their trust in the gospel and they're followers of Jesus. And so right now, we got our little church right here with Rosie and, right. you and me. We're doing church. And so this is, you know, we, we seem to kind of freeze it in to some specific thing that it's got to be in a certain building that has a steeple or something like that and only on Sunday and all this. And there's no reason to do that. Now, I realize there's unique things about the local church when it gathers, but the... Uh, to have a family celebrate the Lord's table together in a very solemn way, I can see that it being a very wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. All right, Mark. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Let me know what your questions are. i got great questions coming in, 877-933-2484. Here's a question, Mark. What was the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament versus New Testament yeah. and through salvation? And in what manner did Jesus the Son exist throughout the Old Testament? Wow. Somebody's been really thinking. I know. That's just awesome, though. Don't you love these questions? They're just flying in, too, and they're all good. And people are, they're reading their Bibles, and they're trying to read with understanding, and I just say, go, 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 you know? Right. Keep keep doing it. And so, uh, about two or three questions there. Uh, The activity of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, again, not all Bible school theologians are going to be on the same page about this because it's nuanced and it's not just as clear-cut as some things that we would like to be. But there is definitely something that happens that's special in Acts chapter 2 with what is described as the baptism of the Holy Spirit because this was prophesied in Joel 2 about 500 years earlier, that God would pour out his Spirit upon all flesh, upon all uh, humans, and this this baptism of the Holy Spirit would take place. So I think, Bill, it's legitimate to call the New Testament era that we're in the age of the Spirit, that he has been poured out upon all of us as believers. And in the Old Testament, the, the Spirit's primary ministry was through two groups. It was through the kings and through the prophets. So that when a king was ordained as king, and anointed as king, uh, you really see this with uh, Saul and uh, David in uh, 1 Samuel, because uh, remember, Samuel goes to (laughs) David's home. That's a great story. And uh, they finally get through all the brothers, and finally the kid, uh, David, is recognized. God says he's the next king, and so Saul anoints David in the midst of his brothers, Mm -hmm. which is something to behold. But anyway, the author says, Uh, The Spirit of God departed from Saul, and the Spirit of God came upon David mightily. All right, we'll take a short break. When we come back, Dr. Mark Muska asked the professor, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. 
Welcome back to the show. Dr. Mark Muska is in studio and has asked the professor. He's been a professor here for 37 years, I think, right around there. But the number is 877-933-2484. And Mark, this is a great question. This is, mm-hmm. a, as a new believer, when I arrive in heaven, first of all, I love the confidence that this person knows as a new believer, their their eternal security, their destiny. The question is, will I recognize Peter and Paul and James and know their stories, or will I have to learn about their history in heaven? Good question. Yeah. Easy to answer. I don't know. Okay. That we we can speculate all we want. Uh, there is um, the, the, the idea of the afterlife and being in this place where God resides, uh, I think we are going to be so shocked and surprised at the reality of it. Uh, lots of authors have tried to speculate about this. The one that really stretches my thinking is C.S. Lewis, because he talks about how heaven is the real, and we live in the vapor now. This is the shadow. The real is there. And that's just fun to think about. Yeah. But with people there, are we going to recognize them? Will they have name tags on? You know, Are, are we going to have formal introductions and everything? I don't know. Uh, a, a, a tangent question a lot of people ask, too, is are we going to recognize our loved ones, and are they going to recognize us? What age will we appear to be? Yeah. All these kinds of questions. And we just, uh, we're left to speculate. We just don't know. So, uh, I, I, and then I'm left with the best thing. I love what one of the pastors here said in the Twin Cities one Sunday where he said, you know, heaven's just not going to be very good if Jesus isn't there. <laughs> and so I think we're going to be so captured by God and the Lord Jesus Christ that all the rest of these people, it might take a couple thousand years before we even notice them. Right. It's just uh, we're going to be overwhelmed. But whatever it is, it's really be good. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mark Musk is my guest. Send your questions over. It's Ask the Professor time, 877-933-2484. Here's a great question, Mark. In Acts chapter 2, verse 4, mm-hmm. were the people filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues, or did they speak in tongues because of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I think it's pretty much a different way to say it, okay. uh, say the same thing. Uh, the text of Scripture says the first one, that uh, this takes place, and Luke, he sounds like a, a reporter because he explains what they saw, what they heard, and what happened to them. So if you want me to read it here, he says, Please verse do. 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. So that's what they heard. You know, this this violent rushing wind sound. And then he he says what they saw. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And then verse 4 is the one you're talking about here. And it says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So it sounds like the... The biblical sequence is more the first alternative of, of what this person said. But they spoke in tongues because they were filled with the Spirit. So that the two are linked together. As the Spirit was giving them utterance, they were speaking in these other languages. Mm-hmm. There's another question. Uh, is the president that we have now 
was he placed there by God? In a, in, in a sense of Romans 13, yes, mm-hmm. because this, uh, uh, we have to be real careful here to say, well, only if they're good ones or bad ones, and then everybody's got an opinion about the current president, and then everybody has an opinion about the prior president to him, too. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of Christians end up at each other's throats about this. But uh, from what God says in Romans 13, uh, these people are there with the sanctioning of God. The, the, uh, this is God doing this. And so uh, it, it helps me a little bit to say uh, when Paul writes this to the Roman church, Nero is almost certainly the emperor. And so they're, t- they're being told to submit to emperor. Uh, to Nero in Rome there. So this is not an easy thing. It's a really tough question for Christians is how to live for God and to be subject to the governing authorities and remain faithful to the Lord. Mm -hmm. And that is a really good discussion question Mm -hmm. in the church. Yeah. Here's a question with crime on the rise in Minneapolis. My wife is contemplating carrying protection with her, uh, so is it okay for her as a Christian to have a pistol on her? Boy, oh boy. You know, we're getting some hot potatoes here today. Uh, this, yeah. uh, this is this is difficult. Uh, on the one hand, Bill, uh, it couldn't be clear in the words of Jesus that we are to turn the cheek to others. Uh, there is a very much a nonviolent tone to what we are as Christians. But then you have to look at the other end of the teeter-totter and say, but where is the place to protect vulnerable people? And so, you know, is it is it wrong for someone to uh, seek to protect themselves or protect the the, pers- the persons that they love? It sounds like this person has strictly a defensive idea in mind. I remember hearing this uh, about an elderly lady who lived in the projects down in Chicago, and she was had a gun strapped to her thigh, and she said, I just want to get home. <laughs> so she's got this, wow. this weapon. And so I just don't know if we can sort that out uh, fairly to everyone. Uh, of course, we are not to be in the business of taking the lives of others and not placing ourselves in the place that our law enforcement people and our government needs to be in. But yet there is a place for protecting yourself as well. Yeah. So you might not carry a gun, but do you carry a stick? And if you care, do you have, you know, you know, keys with a, a, a razor edge on them right. or a, a car shed that you could defend yourself with? Is someone just going to stand there and take it if uh, they're attacked or if their loved ones are attacked? There are Christians who will advocate that to say, yes, that is our role. We are to remain nonviolent no matter what in our dealings with with people, even very evil people. Mm-hmm. That's a barn burner of a question to work your way through. Yeah, it really is. When you talk about self-protection, I mean, why wouldn't you be able to protect yourself from evil, from somebody that attacks you? Well, if you want to give it a real practical turn yeah. as well, uh, when you have parents talking to their kids about what happens if something rowdy breaks out at school, are you allowed to fight in school? Mm-hmm. And uh, Uh, So many Christian parents will take that defensive mode to it to say, uh, I don't ever want to hear you instigating anything with anybody and starting to get physical with them like that and fighting. But you have the right to protect yourself. Yeah. 
or to protect somebody else who's defenseless. Yeah. You can step in and stop it. But rather than slugging somebody, if you can bear hug them and just incapacitate them until a teacher comes along or something sure. like that, that's the best route to take. Sure. So you're not just standing there letting them get pummeled, but yeah. yet at the same time, you're not aggress- uh, aggressive with it. Yeah. I have a friend who's a six-degree black belt and got jumped coming off a train in Amsterdam hmm. by two guys, and I think they were very sorry they did that. They probably were. Mm-hmm. So he didn't have a gun on him, but he didn't need one because his... his skill level is that of a lethal weapon so yeah i said i'm glad he protected himself because they showed up with a knife yeah hmm. wanted his wallet those ethical questions i have great respect for because we have to take the revelation we receive in the scriptures and apply it into these very practical questions of how if we protect ourselves or not mm-hmm. all right um in Second Samuel, I don't know, Rosie, you're reading Second Samuel. You're reading Samuel right now, aren't you? I am. I'm reading First Samuel. Okay. I've been. I just finished First Samuel. Actually, but she's this morning. Get into Second Samuel. I'm Second yeah. Samuel's next. Yeah. That's next. Yeah. Okay, Mark. What about this passage in Second Samuel chapter twelve, verse eleven? This is what the Lord says. So this is the what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, mm-hmm. and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. Mm-hmm. Would you put some context on that, please? Yeah, this is... Um, I'll hang up and listen. Well, this... <laughs> <laughs> Don't hang up, Phil. <laughs> We're stuck without you. Uh, this is the, the story here, a very dark chapter in David's life, when he sins with Bathsheba. And he's found out. Uh, it's amazing how with sexual sin, uh, sometimes uh, somebody gets pregnant, and it's usually the woman, and uh, they're found out. And so uh, she's married to Uriah, mm-hmm. and uh, they've got a problem. So David tries to uh, work that out by bringing Uriah back home. He won't cooperate, so David has Uriah killed in battle. And uh, he thinks, and then he brings Bathsheba into his household. Looks like he's covered his tracks. God sees everything. He sends the prophet Nathan to David. And this, these are the words of Nathan to David here. And he says to him that, uh, first of all, he leads David down a path here by telling him a story about a man who had one precious little ewe lamb and then another man who had many and to the guy who had many took the man's one ewe lamb and killed it and ate it. And and uh, Nathan says to David, what should happen to the man? And he says, he, he should die. And then in a really courageous moment, Nathan points a finger at David and says, you are the man. God gave you everything, but yet you had to covet your neighbor's wife. And look what you've done. So these are part of the consequences that Nathan is delivering to uh, 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 to David here. And so, uh, verse 10, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So he says, I'm going to raise up evil in your house. This really plays to the wisdom literature, Bill. The wisdom literature in the Bible gives us guidance on how to live life skillfully and how to avoid a lot of unnecessary evil. And boy, David screwed this up. You know, mm-hmm. he did a very foolish thing to do this with Bathsheba. So, yep, there's going to be evil 
and he says, I'm going to take your wives before your eyes, give them to your companion. This is fulfilled later on when David's own son rebels against him. Uh, and uh, he drives David out of Jerusalem and goes and takes over the palace and sets him up as king. And he goes into David's harem uh, on the roof of his palace so the whole city of Jerusalem can see it. So that's the way this is fulfilled uh, here. Wow. It's going to be really bad. And uh, because of that, there's civil war, and uh, Absalom, his son, ends up being killed, and uh, Joab uh, kills him even though David says not to. And there's, it's just a mess. It's a hot mess. That comes from this. Yeah. So you'd think we learn, you know, but we don't. We read this kind of thing and go, oh, what a, what a dope he should have been smarter than that. And then we go out and do similar stuff, you know, that it tells you that sometimes we're really not thinking with our brain. You know, there's yeah. other things going on that we do really, really stupid things. Yeah. Dr. Mark Mosca is my guest, and this is Ask the Professor. And Mark is also uh, excited that his two-year-old grandson, Gideon, is celebrating his birthday today. So yep. we're, we're talking about that little bundle of joy and miracle and happiness that that little guy brings you yep just life-giving yeah yeah so nice so if you have a question not about gideon but about the bible you can send it over to 877-933-2484 again 877-933-2484 be right back back to ask the professor it's getting late here. <laughs> it is it is we're all i am so sorry no that was... no you're fine <laughs> i was reading his cues and then i thought he had said no and then i turned it on and off so that yeah, was no problem that was on me Doctor... we get so excited having you here mark yeah we do oh, we yeah. love you mark mm-hmm, boy mm-hmm. dr mark muska asked the professor some great questions are coming in mm-hmm. mark here's a follow-up question to the earlier comment about uh communion and this is um could you please explain the guidelines for those who should and should not. Um, there are prerequisites for taking communion, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a really fair question because, you know, we kind of opened the door there by saying this is something that can be done in other circles, in at least in some traditions, other than with an ordained pastor overseeing this. Right. And these conditions are just as much relevant and in play with an official thing going on in a church with a pastor overseeing it as it would be with a family or some smaller group. And uh, I I like uh, Paul's guidance in 1 Corinthians 11. He's pretty serious here when he talks about this. Remember, the Corinthians were having all kinds of trouble with divisions and pride and ego and all this kind of stuff. And that was, it was uh, spilling over into the Lord's table and Paul has to reprimand them for it. So he goes back and he explains what happened when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And this passage actually is read more than the gospel accounts on this when people celebrate communion because it's so descriptive. Paul does a really a good job of explaining it. But then after he explains the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, he starts out and he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord 
in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But someone must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. So there's a couple things there, and most groups, gatherings of Christians, will abide by these things to say that we are urged here that we are to eat in a worthy manner, to avoid eating the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, and so therefore we're to examine ourselves so that we eat Uh, properly in this. So if we don't, we eat and drink judgment to ourselves. The main way this is understood is that we need to be on good terms with the Lord here and not be in a state of rebellion or open sin Mm -hmm. against the Lord. So how many churches have done this? I'm sure your churches have done this, where uh, they will take time before they Mm -hmm. go into the Lord's table and allow people to have a few moments to examine themselves and confess sin and make sure that they're in the proper place with the Lord to be able to take the Lord's table in a worthy manner. Uh, The Catholic Church goes as far as to have a sacrament of confession so that when people go to the Mass and take part in the Holy Communion, they have uh, they should have gone to confession before that, so they've abided by this right. in First Corinthians. But it's pretty serious here. He says, you don't judge the body rightly. God's going to judge. And he says, this is the reason some of you are sick and some of you have fallen asleep. And that's a euphemism for the death of a Christian. Yeah. So you die and you still go to be with Jesus, but your life is over because you didn't eat in a worthy manner the table here. So yeah. that's pretty serious. There's no kind of warning like this about you know, listening to the sermon in an unworthy manner. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody falls asleep or is reading their uh, uh, emails or something, you know, nothing about that. But the Lord's table, this is not to be messed with. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah. I don't know if this is still instruction from the Catholic Church, but they used to encourage an, an hour fast prior to receiving the Eucharist. I don't know if that's um, comprehensive for the church as a whole, but oh, okay. some some parishes probably... Put that in there as a suggestion for a way to prepare themselves uh, uh, emotionally and spiritually. Mm-hmm. Here's a Lord's comment. Table. Here's a comment, Mark, regarding David's sin. Mm-hmm. Isn't it amazing that Jesus is a descendant of that illicit relationship? Yep. Well, you know why? It's because that takes place with David and Bathsheba in Second Samuel eleven and twelve, but in Second Samuel seven, God promised David that he would put one of his sons upon the throne of Israel forever, and there were no conditions to that. Mm. He didn't say, if you're faithful or if you don't mess around with women, I'll do this. He says, I'm going to do it. And so God could not go back on his word. But because he sinned this way, that kingdom, it was needlessly weakened. So it remained with David and his descendants, but it was weakened, and it didn't have to be. And then it's really bad with Solomon, because Solomon, his son, becomes king, and late in his life, Solomon turns to idolatry. And because of that, the kingdom's going to be taken, for the most part, from David and his family. It splits into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. So sin always weakens God's promises like that. I like to use the illustration, Bill, of a house that God builds, these wonderful promises, and our sin is like termites that get into the house, where the house still stands, but it's weakened. 
and unnecessarily so. So we, you know, the the, the termites got to David. Here. Yeah. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Time for a couple more questions. Text them over to me, 877-933-2484. Here's a question, Mark. Next up is, does the devil know your thoughts like God does? Uh, that, I would uh, say sort of. I don't think I'd go to the point to say knowing your thoughts like God does because uh, nobody knows stuff like God does. Right. Uh, he, the term we use for this is God is omniscient. His knowledge is unlimited. So uh, nobody has that kind of knowledge. It's intriguing, though, Bill, that you see in certain passages, you know, we have to kind of put this together because there's not a direct teaching about Satan and his capabilities and what he can do, what he can't do. But, uh, for example, you remember the scene when uh, Jesus and the disciples, the apostles, uh, were uh, together, and Jesus said, "Who the, who, do, who do the people say I am?" And they talk about, "Well, you're uh, you're Elijah, and this and that." And then he says, "Who do you say that I am?" And uh, Peter says, "Well, you are the Christ, the Son of the Living God." And Jesus. Uh, he compliments him for that, you know, that you did not come up with that yourself, but that was God that showed that to you. And then Jesus talks about how he's going to go to Jerusalem and be rejected and go on trial and killed, and he'll rise again. And Peter says, may it not be, Lord. And Jesus' response to that is, get behind me, Satan. Isn't that interesting? I don't think that was some exaggeration that Evidently, Satan was able to get in there and plant those thoughts in Peter's mind somehow mm. so that he said this right after one of his best moments with I Jesus, know. like kabang kapow. I, how do you go in four verses from... Right, and it just lay an egg like that. <laughs> I know. It's, it's awful, and yeah. he's not a chicken. So if he was a chicken, that'd be all right. But uh, it seems as though uh, Satan has this... I think it's borne out, too, by the testimony of a lot of people. I would say this, that sometimes really malevolent, awful thoughts come into my head, and it's like, what? Where is that coming from? I'm not even thinking about that. I'm having a very nice day and all of that. I mean, can you all re- relate to that? It, it's just weird how these things can be placed. I guess what we have to do, Bill, is respect the domain the material domain of the creation, the physical universe, and then the spiritual domain of God and the angels and the demons and the spirit beings. And somehow those intersect, but we cannot see into that spirit spirit domain unless uh, those in that domain reveal themselves to us. But otherwise, we can't see them, hear them, taste them, smell them, touch them. Mm-hmm. They're intangible. But they appear to be able to have entrance into our domain. So... How that works exactly, I don't know if anybody's got that figured out. Yeah. Is digital church biblical? <laughs> That's a good question. I'm not even sure what digital church is. Well, in, just in kind the of quiet. online stuff. Yeah. Uh, a lot of Zoomy church yeah, going Zoomies. on here yeah. and that. Uh, this, technically, the church isn't gathered, but realistically it is because we are able to interact with one another and able to build one another up, listen to God's word, even take part in worship together and prayers. And so I don't like it much because I'm kind of an old fogey and I'm used to the old, you know, getting together in person. It has its drawbacks to be sure. But, you know, Bill, it also has its advantages. I mean, you think about that little old lady that's 
in the nursing home and she's perfectly cogent, but she can't get out of the right. home because she's crippled. And right. so instead of having to have the pastor just come in person and talk to her, and I hope he does, she can zoom in and participate in the service. It's a, a wonderful blessing of technology that opens doors like that. I have a very good friend of mine who works uh, with a ministry over in South uh, Asia and Southeast Asia. They have been completely shut down because of COVID. He used to go to India two or three times a year, and he hasn't been there in a couple of years now. The guy's on Zoom every morning for about two, three hours wow. working with all of these evangelists and disciple makers in India. Think of the power of that and uh, uh, to uh, be able to do that because of technology. It's a wonderful blessing, but at the same time, it can be a real limit as well. So I would say, yeah, digital church, it's not it's not favorable over face to face, but sometimes it it's pretty, pretty good. Yeah. A lot of great questions today, Mark. Man, we're done. Unbelievable. Yeah. And um, my whole page is filled up, and we didn't even get to some of these. I know. But I want to just say happy birthday one more time to Gideon. Yep. Two years old. That's Mark's grandson. Sweet boy. May God work in his life and his brothers. And, Amen to that. And make them into men of God. Thanks for being here, Mark. We we it's love fun. you, and I love seeing you, and I love being around you. So it's fun. Appreciate it. Yeah. That wraps up our show. If you missed any of it, I know you're going to want to head to the uh, podcast, which is at myfaithradio.com. Maybe you're listening tonight on the podcast. Welcome to the show. So glad you're listening. And th- thank you for supporting Faith Radio. And thank you for supporting me and my show. I love the time with you. And I'm looking forward to our time tomorrow. Have a great night, everyone. See you soon. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.